Father, we pray that as we study your word together this morning, that your spirit will give us eyes to see and ears to hear and grace in our hearts to obey. Pray that the fire of your spirit will illuminate your word and bring it to life within our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Please be seated. Well, it is a, a real privilege and joy for me to be here with you this morning. Uh, I would be happy if it was under different circumstances other than the passing of Father Gene's mom, but uh, nonetheless, uh, it is a privilege for me to be here and to serve. Uh, Father Gene is such a, a dear friend and, and brother in Christ and uh, want to do whatever I can to be supportive and helpful of him. And uh, in fact, yesterday he gave me a phone call and uh, let me know that he was praying for me today. Uh, I'm, I'm hoping that that wasn't out of any kind of fear or anxiety that I might do something bad while he's away. I don't think so. I think it was very well intended. And, uh, and he asked me specifically to convey his love to you uh, and your, his thanks for your prayers uh, throughout, and your understanding throughout this time of his mom's passing. Um, it, uh, and it, it's a joy for me to be able to do this. This is kind of rare because... Uh, we were chatting, and I was answering some questions between the services, and was being asked about how many congregations in our diocese, and how much you travel and try to visit, and and so uh, you know we were just here at the end of June, and to be back so soon is like you know a real privilege because sometimes I wouldn't get back to another congregation for a year or so, and so um, maybe you'd be happy with that, maybe you'd be just as happy to be a year next time, who knows? But uh, I, I'm really grateful for the opportunity to be here, and folks have been very gracious, and uh, my wife didn't come, so I got two cups of coffee this morning, so really, that really makes me happy. Not that my wife didn't come. I'd love to have her here as well. Um, yesterday, uh, Terry and I were in Pittsburgh for the consecration of the new bishop of the Diocese of Pittsburgh in the Anglican Church in North America, and it was a, a really spectacular day. I mean, it, it just was a a blessed time in the Lord for, for several reasons. Um, one is that the new bishop there, Alec Cameron, uh, and his wife Tamara are uh, a dear couple that Terry and I have had the opportunity to get to know a few times over the last year or so, um, long before the possible thing of becoming bishop over there came on the radar, and they're just lovely people. They're just wonderful, dear uh, brother and sister in Christ. And uh, I know that God is going to use them in really significant ways uh, in that work in the future. Um, it was just a, it was a joy for us, too, because the consecration yesterday was, was such a, a time of palpable celebration. Um, Diocese of Pittsburgh went through a really tough season in the transition from their last bishop. They were without a diocesan bishop for uh, even longer than we had been in our season, so almost two years. Somebody told me yesterday it was 22 months. And you could tell there was just this sense of celebration and excitement as God was bringing this new season and this new thing out of a time of, of real challenge. And when I, when I think about that, I think about the, the scripture text for today because in this Roman Road series you've been on, um, Paul has come to a place in these three chapters where he's just been talking about um, the message of Christ going forth to all people in, in Romans chapter 10, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then at the, at the very tail end of that, he talks about the fact that 
that Israel had heard this message, but they, they were, were not understanding. They were not hearing. They weren't getting it. And so, um, so the, this door was swinging wider and wider open to the Gentiles, but the concern was, what about Israel? What, what about them and their response to this message? And you know, this, this passage is a series of, of the Apostle Paul raising questions and then answering them. And so at the beginning of chapter 11, he raises another question. And that question is, has God rejected his people? So, so since Israel has gone through this season of disobedience and hardness of heart, is God rejecting them? Is he done with Israel? And the, the, the answer is very, very strong. By no means. Absolutely not. You'll notice that by no means has an exclamation point on it. Even in the original language, it's a word that's used to convey a really strong, emphatic no. And so, as we come to this passage that's my assignment for the day, bishops take assignments too, and so my assignment is this passage today, and I'm doing my very best to stay, you know, in my lane in, in, in what's been given here. But uh, if, if you will indulge me, I, I do want to read two more verses uh, because it's, it's, it's pointing to what, where Paul is going, the reason he asks this question and starts to answer it. And it, if we could read two verses on, and my apologies to Father Scott for encroaching on his territory where he'll, he'll preach to you next week. Um, Paul goes on to say in verse 11, so I ask... Did they, Israel, stumble in order that they might fall? Again, this is the same question. Is God done with them? Is it all over for Israel? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Spoiler alert. This is going somewhere really, really good for Israel, too. And I'll let Father Scott unpack it for you. I watched his message, by the way, last week. Uh, bishops do that. They watch. I mean, that's, you know, the word episkopos is the overseer, the one who watches. So um, I, hopefully that's not a scary thing. I thought Father Scott preached a brilliant message last week. I was, I was just, just thrilled to, to watch that and, and, and hear him lay out for you this the significance of how we share our faith in Christ so that folks can hear this message of salvation and come to know him as Lord and Savior as well. So just to, for a little more context, and then we'll dive right into these few verses, uh, I, I want to remind you that, that th what Paul is sharing now in answering this question about Israel is, is not a new concept to the Romans to whom he's been writing this letter. This showed up in the very opening chapter, and uh, it, it, there, it's actually a couple of verses that are very well known to people who know their New Testament. And so Paul is preparing to make a trip to Rome. He's never been there before. He's introducing himself. He's trying to help them understand the gospel that he's been preaching for all of these years, both to Jews and Gentiles. And in doing it, he, he makes this, this powerful statement in Acts chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. See if this sounds familiar to you. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, 
to the Jew first and to the Greek, the Gentile, the non-Jew. For it is the righteousness of God, in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul's not introducing some new concept here. This has been at the heart of what he's been writing to them about the gospel writing to them about how the gospel comes and it has a message that it's by grace through the saving work of Jesus, not the works that we do. And and in chapter 4, he brings out this, this brilliant example of Abraham, who is the father for all who believe. Yes, the, the, the biological descendancy of the Jewish people comes through the line of Abraham. So the, the people of Israel would say, Abraham is our father. But Paul says he's also the father of everybody who's a person of faith. So that, that it's Jew and Gentile alike who come to know the saving work of Jesus Christ. And so he's, he's talking to them about this gospel that is spreading more and more and, and, and pointing them to, to the fact that there is a, a harvest that is already coming and is ongoing and is increasing unto the end of the age. And so he talks in chapter 11, verses 11 and 12, about a day yet coming when there's the fullness of everything God is doing, the fullness of the harvest among the Gentiles and among the nation of Israel. Um, I'm a, I, I think sometimes in, in our American Western Christianity, the gospel has been preached in such a way that our concept, without, whether we know it or not, begins to think that as, as this world begins to wrap up, you know, everything just gets worse and worse and worse and darker and harder, and the enemy has a field day, and the people of God kind of hang on by their fingernails uh, until the cavalry rides in at the very end, and saves the last few remaining souls. Um, that's, that was how Westerns were made when I was a kid, right? And they were in black and white. Um, that's not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel says, yes, the enemy gets more and more active, and there is increasing darkness in the world, but the world's darkest hour becomes the church's finest hour where the light shines in the darkness. And we're, we're not going to come out of this world all battered and beaten up. In fact, the scriptures say just the, the opposite. It says God is taking the church and making it into a beautiful, perfect bride without spot or wrinkle. Think about it. Pretty amazing. And so you read the scriptures in their entirety and you discover that, that we're not a dwindling number of people, but this, this group of people who believe in Jesus is growing and growing and growing until you get to those scenes around the throne in Revelation 4 and 5 where there's multitudes that can't be counted out of every tribe and every tongue and every nation in the earth. This is going somewhere, and where it's going is good. And praise God, we get to be part of it because of his love for us through Jesus Christ. And so this is, this is the, the background of what Paul's laid out to talk to them about what's happening now in his present day in answering this question about what about Israel. And so he's, he's laid it out very clearly that this saving work of God is done by grace 
by the unmerited favor, by the goodness of God, his kindness and compassion, not by our works. We don't earn it or deserve it. But it's, it's also a message that's coming out of a deep, deep burden and compassion that his fellow countrymen, his fellow Jews, would come to know Jesus as their Messiah as well. Um, I know Father Gene laid out a, a, a good explanation at the beginning of this, allowing room for holy mystery when we talk about those questions of predestination and election on the one hand and the free will and choice that we make on the other hand and how those pieces all fit together. And uh, throughout my uh, four decades plus of, of ministry and following Jesus, I've had a lot of conversations with a lot of brothers and sisters in Christ, and we try to figure out whether, how, whether this person's a Calvinist or this person's a Wesleyan Arminian and where they fit and how they all go together and all those things. And, uh, you know, some things uh, are holy mystery, but, but it all fits together in the plan of God in a way that we know God has acted on our behalf. And, and I, I'm st I still uh, I am enough of a sound mind that I can still remember my days in seminary, you know, when we, we used to sit around and have these theological discussions and conversations about these classes we were in and wrestling with all these issues. But it's important for us to remember that what Paul's writing here, this is not Paul sitting around having, you know, a, a latte and, and, and having an abstract conversation about, you know, how does this whole thing work out theologically? This is Paul, the missionary apostle, showing the depth of his heart that his fellow Jews would be saved. Even to the point that he's saying, I would rather that I myself be accursed and cut off if somehow it could bring them to know Jesus as the Messiah. This comes out of that kind of compassion and that kind of burden. And so he's not just asked, answering some abstract theological question. He's talking about how we understand the burden of our hearts for the people to know the saving work of God in Jesus Christ. And so with that in mind, he brings up a little, a little uh, term in these verses that you may have caught, remnant, a remnant. It's not the first time that he brings it up. It came up in chapter 9, verse 27, when he quoted the prophet Isaiah talking about the remnant that would be brought back after the captivity and the exile. And it's important to understand that because, as I mentioned before, that's who we're part of. We're part of the remnant. There is a remnant, and it's made up of Jews and Gentiles, a remaining group of faithful people. And here's what I want to emphasize again the size of the remnant is growing, not dwindling. It's growing and not dwindling. And so it's important for us to, to know and understand that. So when Paul asks this question, is, is God rejecting Israel? No, no. He says, there's a remnant. There's a remnant. And so with that in mind, let's, let's look at how Paul speaks to that. Uh, in these couple of verses today. And uh, uh, if, you're, if you're hoping that because there's just a few verses in the text and that will keep the scope of my remarks limited, um, I don't want you to hope, hope uh, you know, without, without any kind of substance to that. Um, but, but what you do have going for you in your favor is notes. 
Um, that's good. The more notes I have, the more concise I can be. The less notes I have, the longer I can speak. And so um, we're going to work on this together. Uh, so Paul's answering this question emphatically, no, God's not done with Israel. And then he, he demonstrates that by, number one, giving his personal testimony. Number two, by sharing the example of what happened in Elijah's day. And then number three, by speaking to the facts of what was happening even as Paul was writing this, the present reality. So real quickly, a, a peek at each one of those. First of all, Paul's personal testimony. I love this. So Paul says, has God rejected Israel? And, and I hope it doesn't sound ungracious, but it's, it's almost like Paul's standing here looking going, duh. I mean, here I am. I'm a, I'm a son of Abraham. I'm, I'm of the nation of Israel. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. God's not done with Israel. All of those first believers were Jewish people. They were part of that faithful remnant who had recognized Jesus as Messiah. He said, no, God's not done. Look, here I am. I'm living proof that God is still saving the Jewish people, the people of Israel, as well as the Gentiles to whom I preach. That's really, really an, an important concept for us to grasp hold of because it, it speaks to the fact that what I said earlier, Paul's not just standing around abstractly giving some theological arguments. He's talking about preaching the gospel and, and how his testimony fits into that. As I mentioned earlier, I, I thought Father Scott gave a wonderful message last week about that Romans 10 passage about how will they hear unless they be unless they, they preach, and how will they preach unless they be sent, and how all of us go and witness to the goodness of God and faith in Jesus Christ. It's a process, and, and I, I hear the heart that Father Scott shared with you last week. I think sometimes folks get unnecessarily nervous about evangelism, even frightful sometimes, and, and it comes, I think, from a, from a misunderstanding about evangelism that sometimes folks have that if, if when I talk about Jesus to someone, if that person doesn't come away from that conversation saying they have fully trusted in Jesus and want to know where they can get baptized and go to church, somehow we feel like we came up short in our assignment. That's actually not the case. I mean, there are times we get to be part of that side of the equation, but Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, he's, he's sharing it, he says, when he's talking about his role and Apollos and Cephas and who does what. And he says, one plants, one sows and plants, another waters, another comes along at some point and harvests. But, but everybody's involved in the same process and whatever comes of it is all to the glory of God, uh, the work of Jesus. And so if we, if we begin to understand that, we begin to understand that sharing the good news is really one of the most natural things in the world we do. And it's not about us, as Father Scott said, and it, we don't walk away feeling validated or not validated. It's just simply a matter of being able to share what God has done for us. A few weeks ago, uh, we had an unusual situation where we were available on a Sunday to go to the local restaurant where we often go other days of the week because we're usually on the road traveling. And uh, the server who's there, who's one of the ones we always ask for, 
Uh, I hope you have a server like that in your life or several of them. And, uh, and she was sharing with us that after 20 years in that rest, serving that restaurant, she was about to take another job. And uh, we've built a relationship over the years. She knows we're believers. You know, we've had wonderful conversations. And so when I heard that this potentially was one of the last times we'd have this conversation, not knowing when we might have a conversation again, the Lord started prompting me about talking to her about, about Jesus. You know, we've been building this relationship and so we did that, and I started to talk a little bit about, you know, faith and church, and, and I, could, I could feel the walls come up a little bit, you know, because she'd had a bad church experience before in a certain situation. And so, you know, again, I, I've done evangelism for years. I've, I've taught and trained and led people in persuasive evangelism approaches, but I'm mindful of how the Spirit is moving. I try to be very sensitive to that. And so I just wanted to do whatever the part was God had for me that day. And so this is what the Lord prompted me to say to her. You can grade it later. You can, you know, feel free to send in your, your report cards on how the bishop did in sharing his faith. But basically, I had a conversation, and it, it, and it, got, it got moved into by the fact that I knew she had this church background where she'd been hurt. And I just, I just said to her, I said, you know, here's, here's the main thing, is I don't know when we're going to get to see you again. We've enjoyed this so much, our times, because we'd stand and talk and everything else. And I said, I just, I don't want to miss the opportunity to have that in the future. And I said, so I just want to encourage you, don't give up on Jesus. You know, if you had a bad experience, I understand, just don't give up on Jesus. I said, because here's the way I understand it. We've come in here time after time after time. And you have been so gracious to, to greet us and to welcome us to the table and to serve us. And I know someday, someday, I'm quite a bit older than you are, and I'm probably going to be in heaven before you get there. But someday, I really hope that I'll be able to greet you and invite you to sit at table and make sure you're served in the meal as well. And, and you know, and, and I felt the walls go down. I felt, you know... I mean, I could have, I, I, I try to be sensitive to the Spirit, and I realize I'm just trying to, I'm, I'm one part of what God is doing now, building a story in her life. That's evangelism. That's evangelism. I've had other days where others have planted and watered, and I end up being the one who actually gets to lead them in a, in a real faith-filled prayer of putting their trust in Jesus. But here's the beauty of this. This is Paul's testimony. Look at Paul. I mean, really? This guy's not rejected by God? He's going around murdering Christians. This guy is, is, you know, is thinking he's so religiously superior to everybody else because he is a Pharisee of the Pharisees. And yet look at how God melts his heart and draws him in and brings him in loving humility to the foot of the cross. Is God done with Israel? By no means. By no means. And Paul says, here I am. I'm a living example of his grace. In fact, there's a, I, I, didn't, I didn't share this phrase in the first service, but I've preached on this years ago. There's a term I heard years ago. I, I don't know who to give credit to, but the term is trophies of grace. That's how I see my life. My life is a trophy of grace. I play a lot of athletics when I was younger, and there's a bunch of trophies somewhere in boxes in the basement. 
They, you know, when I was younger, they were out on the mantelpiece and all over the place, and now we've moved a dozen times, and they're like, they're in a box somewhere in the basement. Interesting thing about trophies. Trophies commemorate a, 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 a tremendous athletic success, and they had absolutely nothing to do with it. Right? They, they stand as a commemoration of what other folks accomplished. And Paul's way he talks about grace is kind of like that. Here I am. I'm a, I'm a trophy of grace. You know, it's all about what Jesus did in saving me and accomplishing his good purposes in our lives. So here's the notorious sinner saved by grace. Is God done with Israel? By no means. Secondly, he points out... Uh, the example of what happened in Elijah's day. And it's a very familiar story. You know it from 1 Kings, where there were all these prophets of Baal and, and false worship going on, and Ahab and Jezebel were over Israel and leading the people astray. And the day came where up, up on Mount Carmel where there was this dramatic encounter, and they built two altars, and, and uh, Elijah called down fire from heaven, consumed not only the sacrifice, but the altar and the water and the ground and everything around it. And uh, there, was this, there was this marked moment in the nation of Israel where the people said, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. And, uh, and shortly thereafter, because in zealousness, the prophets of Baal were killed and, uh, and Jezebel says, I'm going to get you. You know, so be it to me if I don't end your life by the end of the day. And Elijah Heads out of town, right? He's on the first train out of town. And he ends up out in the wilderness, and he's worn out, and he's de spiritually depressed, and he's feeling sorry for himself, and he just wants to die. He just feels like he's poured himself out for God. He's tried to do everything he can, and he's just feeling sorry for himself. He feels like I'm the last faithful one around. And, of course, God comes to him and says, like, Elijah, what are you doing here? Oh, man, what's up? And he starts to tell him, and, and Paul's recounting it here, I'm the last one left. They've, you know, I, I'm the last faithful one and all of these things. And God reminds me, he says, no, that's not true, Elijah. There's still, there's still 7,000 who haven't bent the knee to Baal. So get up. There's more work to do. This is, this is the, the key to that phrase uh, that Paul uses here of remnant. You're not the last one left. God has a remnant. God always has a remnant. The church has gone through some difficult times in seasons and centuries, but God always has a faithful remnant. Some might say the church is going through a, a challenging time right now. I read the statistics. I watch what's happening. I'm, I'm learning about the nuns, not the N-U-N-S. Nuns are nice too, but the nuns, the N-O-N-E-S, the people who've started to walk away from church and you know, they're, they're kind of disappointed, and they're sort of doing their own thing. They're not totally turned off to God, but they just aren't totally turned on either. And, and what's going to happen in the midst of that? And people are, some people start to wring their hands, and it's like, no, God's not finished yet. God's still doing a great work. God always has a remnant. Noah and his family, that's a remnant through the flood. Lot's family being brought out of Sodom. That's, that's a remnant. There's interesting verses at the end of Genesis where Joseph is now revealing his true identity to his brothers. Remember this story? 
and they're, they're afraid that he's going to take retribution on him, and Joseph has this mature faith in God, and he says, no, 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 no. What you meant for evil, God meant for good, and he sent me down here, and he gave me wisdom, so now when this famine is coming, we've got enough to keep multitudes of people alive, and he uses the term remnant, so there will be a remnant of people. Life will continue. God's always got a remnant, and the whole message of the prophets is all about Israel being brought back after their captivity and rebuilding the city and rebuilding the temple and once again being a, a nation that's a light on a hill for the nations around them. God always has a remnant. And so we're reminded of that as well. And then Paul uh, begins to speak about the present reality. So he says, here's, here's how I'm backing up my answer to this question. God has not rejected Israel. Number one, personal testimony. Paul says, I am an, I'm a, one of the children of Israel. And I'm in the remnant. Secondly, he says, just like in Elijah's day, there's always a remnant. There's always more faithful people. And so Paul says in verse 5, so too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And he's reminding these people that, that God is calling out both from the Jewish nation and from the Gentiles where he has preached the gospel a remnant of those who are growing in number as faithful followers of Jesus Christ. There is a remnant chosen by grace. Chosen by grace, important. I know you hear this. I know Father Gene is a person who preaches that it's by grace and not by works. That it's, it's not what we have done, whether it's the Jewish people trying to keep the law of Moses or whether it's Gentiles who are just trying to you know, keep their version of the Ten Commandments or be a little better than Uncle Fred, who everybody knows is a real sinner. You know, something like that. Um, if you have an Uncle Fred, please don't tell him I said that. Um, but, but, you know, you get into this comparison game and you think, well, if I can do more good than bad or at least I can be better than so-and-so or whatever. No, no, it's not of works. It's by grace. It's the, the, the free, loving gift of God to us. And it's really important. He points out, he says, he says in verse 7, Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. Now, what does that mean? It means they failed to obtain a way of getting to God by keeping the law. Remember, remember God choosing them was not the fact that, you go back and read in Numbers and in Deuteronomy, God didn't choose Israel so they would be the only people that ever got saved. He chose them so they would become a nation of messengers that told everybody else how to get saved, along with them. And so he says, but, but along the way, they fell into the trap that any of us can fall into where we feel like we can do it ourselves. Isn't that as old as the garden, right? We don't need God. We can, that's what the enemy tells us. You can, you can do this. And so along the way, uh, he says they failed to obtain this relationship with God because it doesn't happen by doing the works of the law. But he says the elect obtained it, and the elect are from both Jew and Gentile. He's unpacked that all the way through. Any Jew who believes, any Gentile who believes, who doesn't trust in their own good works, 
but believes in the saving work of Jesus on their behalf. They've obtained it. And the, and the ones who don't receive it by faith, what happens to them, he says? They're hardened. They're hardened. The more we, we try to do this ourselves, the easier it is to, to take on a, a characteristic hardness that thinks, um, well, it, it can think a couple of things. It can think that, well, in comparison, I'm better than other people. It can think that, well, because I've done such a good job, I'm really entitled to the favor and blessing of God. Uh, it, can, it can think that, well, since, since I've done this the right way, I'm right. And then, and then I can become very argumentative with other people. Evangelism is not arguing better than other people. Evangelism is sharing the loving good news about who, who Jesus Christ is. And so I don't want to be in that camp that gets hardened and feels like I, I've convinced people by being a better debater than they are. But no, the elect obtain it. How do they obtain it? By grace. What does that mean? That means we, we were constantly reminded that this was nothing that we have done. And it's nothing that I deserved. And when I meditate on that, I begin to find different characteristics growing in my life. Humility. Humility. Compassion. This is what's coming out of Paul's heart, his compassion for his fellow countrymen, a burden for their souls, and even a kindness. You know, I, I point out, I like to always go back, loop back and point out to people the collect of the day that we prayed earlier. And about this time in the service, I asked, does anybody remember what we prayed for 20 minutes ago? And, and usually the answer is no. Uh, but you can go back and check on it. What did, what did what we pray? For the virtues of faith, hope, and love. And, and for the help of God who would cause us to love the things that he commands so that we could obtain the promises, not out of our good works, but by the grace that he pours into our lives. And when we start to, to think that way, we start to carry a different attitude and demeanor into our relationships with the world. One of my favorite verses in the whole book of Romans is Romans 2.5, where in the midst of Paul describing how salvation comes by faith and not by works and how we're all guilty before the Lord and need his forgiving grace, and he says this. He says, it is the kindness of God that leads men to repentance. It's the kindness of God that leads men to repentance. When I was... When I was uh, uh, a young man, and I'd gotten far away from God, and I was angry and rebellious. I had all kind of people who were witnessing to me about the waywardness of my life, and uh, so they would evangelize me, and uh, I, I love them. They, they, had a, they had a burden for my soul, but they would, they would come up and they would tell me what a, what a rotten sinner I was, and it didn't have a whole lot of impact on me because I already knew I was a pretty rotten sinner. You know, it's like, well, tell me something I don't know. I mean, yeah, that's how I live my life. Um, I'd, I'd gotten angry and walked away, and I, I was sort of wore that as who I was. What won me to Christ was kindness. People talked to me about how God loved me. People began to unpack for me and not just talk about it, but demonstrate it. And that kindness began to melt my heart until the day came when I received that gift of the love of the Father 
that I knew I didn't deserve. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. All right, I'm going to land real quickly now, like an aircraft carrier. Here we come in real quick. So what's the takeaway from this message? I think there's, there's three things I want to leave with you. And uh, I'm going to actually share them with you in the framework of several verses from Hebrews chapter 10. Um, scholars debate who wrote the book of Hebrews, who wrote uh, you know, this letter um, that many people think it was Apollos, some think some others. Um, the traditional understanding of the church was that Paul wrote this also, although it's unusual he didn't put his name on it like he does on his other letters. It sounds very much. If it wasn't Paul, whoever wrote this was thinking what Paul was writing in Romans chapter 11, talking to the Jewish people. Hebrews, right? That's the name of the letter, to, to these Jewish believers who had become followers of Christ. And so this is what he says in Hebrews chapter 10, starting with verse 19. This is a very familiar passage. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I had a professor in Bible college who referred to this section of Hebrews as the lettuce patch because three times the writer says, let us, let us, let us. Eh, kind of corny, but it'll help you remember it, okay? So three things he says, let us do. First one is this, let us draw near to the throne of grace. This is a, the image of prayer. Let us come before the Lord, always praying with deep gratitude that God has saved us by his grace, not of works that we have done. And let that soften our hearts so that we then carry that burden of others as we pray for them, that they would come to know the kindness of the Lord as well. That's number one. Number two, he said, let us hold fast the confession of our faith, firm and unwavering to the end. This is about us living as part of the remnant and faithfully sharing the goodness of God with other people. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 3. He says, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts so that you're always ready to give a reason and account for the hope that is within you. That we can speak that with kindness and with love in great humility. And thirdly, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, encouraging one another. So when we go through our tough times, when we go through challenging seasons, we don't get that Elijah complex where we want to just slink off to the wilderness and complain to God that we're the only one left. But let's come around each other as fellow believers in the body of Christ and remind each other that we are part of the remnant and the remnant is growing and God is still strong and faithful to us and encourage one another to keep going. I'm going to leave this as a final sort of admonition to you as your bishop for this diocese. The way I think about this is going back to that picture of Elijah. 
when Elijah was in that tough place and God had to encourage him and bring him out of it, what did he tell him to do? He told him to focus on what's about to happen next. He told him to go and anoint Elisha as the next prophet. And he went and told him to anoint Jehu as the next king for Judah and to go and anoint the next king for Syria. And if you follow what each of those did, they did important things for the faithful witness of the coming of the kingdom of God. And in fact, Elisha, you know, walked in a double portion. Everything Elijah did, Elisha did twice, you know, bigger and better because of the double portion. So here's what I'm saying. We're part of this remnant of this Elijah generation. Let's live for what's coming in our Elisha generation. Let's live for this next generation. They're already among us. It's not we're waiting for them to get here. They're already among us. And if we will stir up one another to love and good deeds, if we will pray, if we will give, if we will encourage, we will see a move of God across the Great Lakes region in this, in, and we'll be alive to get to see it as well. But we'll see this next generation raised up but let's not grow weary in well-doing. And we can be partners with God in seeing that come to pass. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you'll take this word, may it be deeply implanted in our hearts, and by your Holy Spirit, strengthen us with your enabling favor that we will live it as lights and witnesses for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to